Last week we got about nine verses into Isaiah 42. So we will at some point here pick it up at Isaiah 42.10. This section that starts back in chapter 40, I sort of sat down and just read it all in a swoop last night. And the easiest way to describe it is it's like a wave. It goes up and down, and it alternates between telling Israel why it is they're going into exile, and then alternatively comforting them that God is still with them. And the period of the wave is usually about a chapter, a chapter and a half. So there'll be this passage where he details the sins of Israel or Judah or Jacob, depending on who he's talking to, talks about exile, talks about punishment, and then turns around and talks about regathering. And interspersed there in almost every chapter is a commentary on idolatry. The idea there is that he alone is able to tell the end from the beginning. He alone is powerful. He alone is able to save. And who's trusting in idols varies. Sometimes it's Israel, sometimes it's the nations. But the idea of trusting in idols is in all cases presented as something very foolish, which of course it is. There's also some messianic passages in there. The prophet refers to Israel, of course, as his servant. And one of the things we said last time is you also have the servant who is the Messiah, and you have the servant who is Israel. And as you're reading, figuring out which incarnation of servant we're talking about is sometimes difficult. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's really clear, but sometimes it's kind of difficult. And as I said last time, one of the reasons that Orthodox Jews don't see Yeshua as the Messiah is they see these servant passages as uniformly dealing with Israel. The other thing it could be is all three. And we talked about that several times. Prophets speak in dark sayings. In fact, God, when he's speaking to Miriam in the incident where she's stricken with leprosy, he says, Moses, I speak to face to face. All these other prophets I speak to in dark sayings, metaphors and stuff like that. Moses is unique among prophets in that he sees God face to face and God speaks to him clearly and directly. So the other thing we have going on here is this is poetic imagery. It is imagery that would have been difficult to understand at the time because one of the things we're going to talk about here is the Babylonian exile. Well, at the time Isaiah is writing, the Babylonian exile is 100 years in the future. So it isn't anything they know anything about, but he talks about it here. So the stuff here would have been difficult for a contemporary of Isaiah's to figure out. It is, in some cases, equally difficult for us to figure out because some of the stuff is yet future to us. So it's just as unclear to us as it was to them. And some of it Christians believe has been fulfilled in the New Testament. And they get quoted in the New Testament to sort of point you there and say, this one is what that means. So as we read this, just understand that it's often obscure, often difficult 
and in some ways it seems kind of repetitious because you have this undulating wave that alternates between excoriating the nations, excoriating Israel, and excoriating idolatry. And those three themes, if you will, weave through these poetic chapters that we're in the middle of right now. Okay, let's pick it up at verse 5, and we'll get a run at verse 10. We did 5 last time, so I'm in 42.5. Thus says God the Lord, and that's Elohim Yehovah, who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yehovah. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Who is you here? I think it's Israel. I would not yell at you very much if you said the Messiah. Sometimes it's, it's not obvious. So verse 6 again. I am Yehovah. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am Yehovah, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So you have what I'm suggesting is the mission of Israel, and if you want to do the Messiah there, I am not going to argue with you very hard. But then notice that he swings into knowing the past and knowing the future and excoriating idols and saying that he will not share his glory with idols. All of the themes that I just talked about in the introduction here. So now to verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to Jehovah and declare his praise in the coastlands. Jehovah goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. And this is, if you will, part of that wave that I have been talking about. This is extolling Jehovah and his power, saying that he is able. Because just before, he said, I won't share my glory with idols, and I am the only one who knows what's going to happen next. And oh, by the way, I am powerful and I am able to do what needs to be done from my perspective, God's perspective, in light of my understanding of the future. One other thing before we go. Obviously, this passage from 10 through 13 is telling the world to sing praises to God. And that, I will suggest, ought to take you either to Ephesians or to Hebrews. Because one of the things that the Messiah does is gives the nations, the Gentiles, the ability to become fellow heirs of God. It's in both Ephesians chapter 3 as well as the book of Hebrews. So the idea here is at the point where the nations know Jehovah, there is then reason for singing a new song and singing his praise to the ends of the earth. 14. 
For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Who is I? God. And what he's saying here, and this goes back to Deuteronomy, is what God does with respect to Israel is he gives them a great deal of freedom and he is long-suffering. So they wind up going a long way down the rabbit hole before he finally reaches out and snaffles them up. You could apply that, by the way, to the United States right now. We are a long way away from where we were even 50 years ago. And we are accelerating. When you're in a hole, stop digging. We have brought in machinery to keep digging. And at some point, God ceases to hold his peace and he takes action. So what he's saying here is that he's held his peace and he kept still and restrained himself. And you can sort of say in parentheses, although it does not say it precisely, in the face of human sin. Perhaps the nations, perhaps Israel. Because you remember when he's talking to Abraham. And he's promised Abraham the land of Canaan, but it's going to be a while because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Which is to say they have not gone far enough down the path to perdition that it is time for him to act. And so back here in 14, when he says, for a long time I have held my peace, I have kept still and restrained myself. In the case of Abraham, it was 400 years between the promise to Abraham and the Exodus. So what he's talking about here is that he's held his peace, but now I will lay waste mountains and hills, dry up their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trusted in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Notice the sequence in light of what I started off with. So we're talking about God finally having it right up to here, and he's going to act, and he's going to do some stuff, but in that process, he is going to lead someone out. And I am inferring that that someone who is going to be led out is Israel. The question was, is he referring to Israel as blind? And the answer to that is absolutely. Because remember back in Isaiah 6, verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So referring to Israel in exile as blind is entirely appropriate. And, oh, by the way, it's very clear in one of the Psalms, and if we get time, I'll look it up. But basically what it says is people who worship idols become like what they worship. 
And the deal about the idols is they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, they have hands but do not handle, they have mouths but do not taste. In other words, they are sensorily deprived because they are made out of metal. There is no life in them. And those who follow them or worship them become like what they worship. So the idea then of Israel becoming blind and deaf and unfeeling is an indication, especially in light of Isaiah 42 here, that they have gone off into idolatry, and in their idolatry they have become like the idols they worship, blind and dumb and unfeeling. I'm in Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In other words, the worship of idols strips you of the natural senses that God has given you. So back here in Isaiah 42, Israel is in exile. God has watched the exile for a period of time, and has finally decided that he is going to take his people out of it, just like he did with Egypt. And so what he's going to do is he is going to bring natural devastation on the places where they are captive. And then, verse 16, And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to take them by the hand, lead them out of exile, and restore their senses in that process. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So what he's saying is, I am doing this for the sake of my covenant and for the sake of the love of my people, not because they deserve it. He's leading, I'm suggesting, Israel out, and he's restoring their senses. So the first thing he restores is their eyesight. Verse 18, Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? or blind as the servant of the Lord. I am suggesting to you that is not talking about the Messiah. That's talking about Israel. 20. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways we would not walk, whose law we would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. He set them on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Now, pronouns have just shifted on us. What we've been talking about here is Israel in apostasy. So 
he, God, poured out on him, Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle and set him, Israel, on fire all around. But he, Israel, did not understand. It burned him, Israel, up. But he, Israel, did not take it to heart. Chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, Jehovah, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now remember, at the end of the last chapter, he poured out on him the heat of his great anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around. Understand that this is a continuation of that thought. So what he's saying is, when I was sending you off into exile, I did, in fact, pour battle out upon you in the form of Assyrians and in the form of Babylonians. And I did, they did set the Jerusalem on fire. But now he's saying, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And have is in English, obviously past tense, as it is in Hebrew. The problem with God, from our perspective, is God is not operating in our time stream. Since we are in different time streams, he will say things through his prophets as if they have already happened, because from his perspective, they have. From our perspective, they may be yet future. So, verse 2 again. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am... Yehovah, your Elohim, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. And I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Back to verse one and a half. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. So he's talking here past tense in terms of the Exodus because he talks about giving Egypt and Cush and so forth as ransom for them. So, past tense, he's talking about the Exodus. However, he's also talking future tense about return from exile. And at the point where this is being written, half of Israel is in exile, half of Israel is still in the land. The complete exile of Israel is yet a hundred and some odd years in the future. But down here in verse 3, what he's talking about is the price that he was willing to pay to acquire Israel as his chosen people. He was willing to pay, if you will, in terms of people. I gave men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. One of the things we talk about when we're going through Exodus is there is a series of swaps that God makes So he starts off at the burning bush, and he says, all right, go tell Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn. If you don't give me my firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn. So then we go through all the plagues and stuff and the death of the firstborn. So Israel has now been traded for the firstborn of Egypt. That's swap number one. Then we go through the Red Sea and all that kind of stuff, and we get to the unfortunate incident of the golden calf. And then we have the swap of Israel's firstborn for the Levites. 
So there's a series of, if you will, one-for-one -one trades that gets made, and he's referring here back to the original trade that purchased Israel out of the world as his nation. Verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We just shifted again. Talking about the original price that God paid for Israel in terms of trading the firstborn of Egypt for the nation Israel. Now he's talking about going out to the four corners of the world and saying, I want my people back. So now he's talking in terms of a present in the case of Israel or yet future exile in the case of Judah. Keeping all this straight is not trivial. And the complete return of Israel is also future for us because the ten lost tribes have not been restored. And in fact, Judah has not been completely restored either. This may be talking about future perfect tense, which means in the future I will have done this. That would be the way you would construct it in English. But it isn't that clear here. To say We sort of shift between the Exodus, where he purchased Israel, and sometime yet future when they will be physically redeemed and returned to their land. The problem here is different time streams, and he's talking through a prophet, and he's not making a great deal of effort to be crystal clear and understandable because that doesn't suit his purposes. Remember back in chapter 6, he says, keep on talking, but blind them and stop up their ears so they don't understand. So the fact that you've got this wobbly stuff going on is part of the design of the prophecy. One of the things that the splitting of Israel and Judah accomplished, where Israel, the northern kingdom, is gone and scattered as far as we know, but Judah goes into exile in Babylon for a short period of time, 70 years, and then most of them come back. And the reason that they came back is because the Messiah needed to be born. And he needed to be born in the land, and he needed to be born of the tribe of Judah. So even though back earlier on in Isaiah, the prophet was taking every bit as much of a stripe off of Judah as he did off of Israel. And you read the early parts of Isaiah and you say, well, why didn't Judah go into exile? I mean, the stuff he's saying about Judah is every bit as bad as the stuff they're saying about Israel, right? And I am inferring that the reason for that is Judah needs to be a coherent unit. They will be taken out and then brought back. There will be a messianic event, which is to say the birth of the Messiah. And then 40 years later, they're back out into exile. So their exile has never really completely ended. It was just sort of a bop back into the land, get the Messiah born, and then back out into exile. Which leads me to suspect, surmise, guess, speculate. Everybody notice all those weasel words I just put on this? As Israel is now coming back into the land, I am speculating that we are being set up again for another messianic event, which is the second coming of Yeshua. Let's pick it up at verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. 
We're talking about now people who are in idolatry. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Jehovah, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, and when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares Jehovah, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Remember, I am going to call to the four corners of the earth. And he does not say when he calls for the four corners of the earth, come. What he says is, give them up. In other words, you have got my people in captivity. I want them back. This is not, hey, all, all you Israel, come on back. That's not what's being said. What he's saying here is, I am able to do that. And oh, by the way, all you nations that are trusting in your idols, uh, yeah, bring them up. Let, let's have a council here. Let's see what they can do. Because I am able to do what I say I will be able to do. And furthermore, I am the savior of my people. And there will be no strange God among them when I bring them back. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am Jehovah, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. This I do not understand. And I've said this before. For your sake I send to Babylon the Chaldeans and the ships which they rejoice. I don't remember Chaldeans being maritime people. Maybe talking about the Red Sea. They certainly, I'm sure, had ships down in the Red Sea. But the way to get to Israel from, from Babylon or the plain of Shinar is up through the Fertile Crescent. It's not a naval trip. It's a foot trip. I just don't understand that. And he refers to it several times. And, and this may be simply an ignorance on my, I'm sure it is an ignorance on my part. I mean, <laughs> who else's part would it be ignorant on? Um, but I don't get it. But anyway, notice that we're talking now about Babylon. Verse 16. Thus says Jehovah, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lay down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, and wild beasts will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And again, talking in terms of military, and certainly, for example, the Romans do come by ship. And so the idea of naval forces engaging against Israel is not at all uncommon or unusual. I just can't figure out why he assigns them to the Chaldeans instead of the Tarshish or the Romans. So anyway, the point is, he brings Israel back from captivity for the purpose, if you will, that they would declare his praise. Verse 22, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have 
been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money nor satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. In the previous paragraph, what he's talking about is, all right, all you nations that have my people in captivity, give them up. Now, in 22 through 24, it seems like uh, this is why you're going into exile. You see the sort of up and down of this, if you will. 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Up in the previous paragraph, he's talking about, don't be afraid. You'll go through the flames. You'll go through the water. It'll all be fine. And now he's down to, uh, you guys are not having any kind of a proper relationship with me. Furthermore, your mediators, which is the priests, are not doing what they're supposed to do. You're not honoring me. And oh, by the way, remember Malachi is a series of questions, rhetorical questions. God says X, the priests answer back, well, in what way have we done that? And one of the ways they have done that is they have treated the service of the Lord as if it is a weariness. It is just too much trouble for us to do the things that God would have us do. And I read that, by the way, as not that it's too hard, but that we're bored with it. Oh, it's another Shabbat. Oh, it's another feast. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. Not that it's too difficult. It's just we're tired of this stuff. And so what God is saying here is he is referring to that attitude and be saying, you guys haven't treated me with honor. You haven't brought me sacrifices. You haven't bought sweet cane with money to bring. And It's just sort of you're taking me for granted. And, oh, by the way, if you don't think that's the case, let's sit down and talk about it. You print your case. You know, let's, let's hear what you got to say. And, of course, that's obviously rhetorical because they have no case to present. But if you go to Malachi, what you see is, they do present their case, where they say, well, in what way have we not honored you? In what way? You know, that kind of thing. And he then lists the things that they have done. So Malachi, if you will, would be a companion piece to this chunk of scripture because it expands that attitude and gives specific examples. Mm-hmm. 